I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. Both the entirety of the scriptures and Jesus present a crystal clear teaching on what it means to do justice and to stand in solidarity with the oppressed. This teaching is, in our time and place, as controversial and divisive as it was thousands of years before us. But in a world torn apart by socio-political vitriol, what is perhaps Jesus' most controversial teaching rings out as well. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. To begin, take a deep breath, try to clear your head, and imagine something with me. Imagine yourself sitting on a green hillside. Though the sun is bright overhead, the sky isn't even blue. There's a cool breeze that rustles the lush grass around you. You are sitting amongst a crowd. There are hundreds of other people, men, women, children. They're all sitting, leaning forward, necks craned, slightly upward to better see and hear this singular figure standing before the crowd, Yeshua Manatzadat, or Jesus, who is from Nazareth. Something about this man, this figure, makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. There have been others like him. There's been other rabbis, other teachers, even prophets. But the words of this Jesus make your heart hammer against your ribcage. Could he be the one? The authority with which he speaks is like a spark inside your mind that ignites passion and potential and even hope. And hope for you is something in short supply. Imagine yourself as a Jewish man or woman living in the first century in Israel. And you have all but given up on the idea that the promises of the scriptures might ever be fulfilled. Your people, the ancestors of Abraham, of Moses, of David, feel as though they might go on steeped in the consequences of sin forever. Your God, Yahweh, had chosen Israel to become the means through which he would begin restoring a broken world. But Israel blew it. Again and again she failed. And so you live under the heavy oppression of the pagan Romans. Your home, the land of your ancestors, is a pagan militarized zone. They tax the poor into poverty, into slavery. Your people who have known the whips and cruelty of Egypt, the horrors of Babylon and exile, now suffer under the Roman oppressor. Rome bullies, Rome beats, Rome mocks, insults, abuses. Rome cares nothing for the God of Israel, let alone his people. Not unlike Nazis in modern thinking, Romans were villainous in every way. But didn't God promise to return to his people? Didn't God promise a king from the line of David that would return Israel to her former glory? Yes, God promised a Messiah, an anointed one, a coming king. Could this guy be the one? And though hope has become elusive, you cling to this belief that Messiah will come. You think of these Romans that have stolen your land, driven you into poverty, killed, raped, and ravaged your people. They blaspheme your God. And you imagine Messiah, a glorious warrior from God himself, drawing his sword, filling the streets of Israel with the blood of the evil Romans, taking Israel back for God, bringing God back to the temple. Messiah, who would bring an end to oppression once and for all with a sword. The wrath of God against evil and injustice. 
And here you sit on this hill with so many others like you, generations of oppression and abuse, so much anguish and longing and hope stretched thin. And before you stands this teacher, this prophet, his words aflame with the passion of God. And you allow yourself to consider for the first time in a long time, though hope is a scary thing, that this could be the Messiah, that this might be the one, the time might have finally come. But then Jesus says something that makes your stomach drop. Let's read it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven who causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, before we unpack this text, I must confess once again in this series that as a white man in America now living in a predominantly white city and leading a predominantly white church, talking about enemy love is in many ways easy and comfortable for me and for us. But if you'll stay with me, my hope is to make all of us uncomfortable for the sake of Jesus. And Jesus, our teacher, begins in verse 43 by saying, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The command to love one's neighbor is not only well represented in the Old Testament, Jesus himself spoke plainly in saying that really the central message of the entire Old Testament could be summarized in one command, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. To Jesus, this is the greatest commandment of all and central to his entire way of life and his overall set of teachings. But it begs the question, who is my neighbor exactly? In first century Jewish thinking, your neighbor was defined by geographic proximity, kind of the way we tend to understand the term now, or it was taken to simply mean other Jews or other people with whom Jews were friendly. So in other words, love those of the same tribe, love those of the same group identity. Love your friends, love the people who love you. So Jesus speaks to the crowd and brings up a line of thinking with which he assumes they are familiar. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. This, after all, is from the Torah. And then he goes on to say, hate your enemy. Now, the charge to hate your enemies is not from the Hebrew scriptures. We think this had become a popular common sense reading of Leviticus and consequently a Jewish figure of speech. Love your neighbor and thus hate your enemy. So Jesus is, we think, broaching a popular colloquialism when he says, you've heard it said, hate your enemy. And he goes on in verse 44, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says, you have taken Leviticus 19 to command love for neighbors and then logically imply hate for enemies. But I tell you, this is what God desires. Love your enemies. In fact, Leviticus 19 actually offers a glimpse of this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Now imagine the radical dichotomy of such a statement. Jesus is saying, you think that Leviticus 19 is about liking people that you like and hating people who hate you, but I'm here to tell you that the correct reading is love for everyone 
neighbors, and enemies. Love even your enemies. The word enemy is ekthros in Greek, a word with incredibly broad implications. And ekthros applies to any and all peoples with whom one doesn't get along. Could be very personal, as in the grumpy neighbor, the jealous coworker, or the abusive parent. But it can also be broad, including national enemies, political enemies as well. And the word is intentionally plural, meaning love your enemies, each and every one of them, all of them. Isn't it radical enough that Jesus would suggest loving a personal enemy, the backstabbing friend or the estranged spouse or the abusive parent? That would be a radical command. And a radical an idea though that may be, many Christians would desperately love to leave it there. Let us struggle with the legitimacy Uh, the legitimately difficult task to somehow love the person or the people in our lives who have done us harm. That would be really hard. Must we also broach the topic of political enemies? Must we love the people with the slogans that we hate, the people on the side of the aisle that we hate? What does it mean to love your enemies in a world of MAGA hats and Black Lives Matter with elephants and donkeys? with social justice warriors and alt-right trolls? What does it mean to love your enemies in a world of defund the police, America first, militarism, national defense, preemptive strike? It seems to me, though there are some willing to enter into this, one of the most divisive teachings of Jesus But when those people who are willing to enter into this divisive teaching, when they pry open their willingness to love enemies, they find it wide enough for only low offense individuals and for abstract love. Meaning, fine, I'll love my friend even though they hurt my feelings. Low offense individuals. Or, sure, Jesus, I will love the villains in my life, those who are truly heinous in my eyes, If by loving them, you mean trying to limit the awful things I wish on them. Abstract love, changing in just your thinking. But no one in Jesus' audience could have helped but hear enemy and think Rome. Rome, the occupying military force. Rome, the evil oppressor that ignores and abuses and tramples our land, our way of life, our people, our God. Rome was not low offense. Rome was not abstract. The faces of Roman soldiers who made security rounds down city borders would be etched in their minds. The friends and family who had been hurt, abused, taxed into poverty by Rome were similarly impressed upon their hearts when they heard Jesus' words. And these Jewish men and women sitting on that hill were thus yearning for Messiah to do something about all this, for his sword of uprising to spill Roman blood. Could this Jesus be him? And your heart starts to race as he begins to quote the Torah, Leviticus 19, that you've taken to mean love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Yes, Jesus, yes, go there. And then your breath catches when he says, I tell you, love your enemies. How can you say this, Jesus? You, the one we thought could be the Messiah, your command for how we deal with these enemies, how we deal with the oppressor, is to love them? The kind of love Jesus not only describes but commands is not feeling nice things toward someone or something. The Greek word for love Jesus uses is agape love, a word I'm sure many of you have heard before. Agape is a love of the will, One commentator defines agape love as 
unconquerable benevolence or invincible goodwill. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight defines the word this way. This love is a rugged commitment to be with someone as someone who is for that person's good and to love them unto God's formative purpose. Not unlike Jesus' nonviolence ethic, which rejects both retaliation and a passive do-nothing approach, Jesus' command to love enemies is much more than not hating them. It is an active pursuit for the good of the enemy. Now, before we go any further, I want to highlight something often lost in the subversive charge to love enemies. Something I think is particular, particularly pressing as we, Van City Church, work to become a people of justice and of racial reconciliation. In a world of systemic racism, the evil of the empire, racialized police brutality, generations of violent oppression of people of color, remember this, loving enemies does not mean de-emphasizing evil. Loving enemies does not mean we remain silent about evil. Loving enemies does not mean that we rush to look for the best in our enemies. That's one reason the command is so striking. The idea isn't to convince yourself that there's some pragmatic reason to love your enemies. They may be, in every human sense, unlovable, and Jesus commands, love them anyway. And so we then exist in a tension where the church must appropriately identify and condemn evil while simultaneously loving and blessing the people who do evil. And there are other important things in this delicate balance as well. I've watched these past few weeks in the wake of the brutal murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and the ensuing international outrage of some Christians barreled into the conversation around enemy love recklessly. Remember, Jesus was a Jewish man in first century Israel. He was born into a world of oppression and he walked in the shoes of the oppressed as the oppressed. Jesus knew the weight of his own words. But many of us don't. We can't. It doesn't mean Jesus' command isn't difficult or scandalous for us, even for those of us who have known comfort and privilege. But it does mean that we have to do more work to understand and come to terms with the weight of this command. We have to be careful not to wield this scandalous command recklessly. If we do, we will bulldoze other crucial dynamics that disciples of Jesus must recognize in a world torn by evil and injustice. Like, first of all, lament. Taking time to recognize evil has been done and allowing ourselves to feel the weight of wrongdoing. To say, as the church, this isn't right. We need to feel that and mourn with those who mourn. And solidarity. The disciple of Jesus is to love their enemies, but they never side with their evil. They never defend the enemy's evil. They never rationalize injustice or oppression. No, we stand in solidarity with the oppressed, not the enemy. We denounce evil. We take action against evil. We listen and learn. We pray and fast. We speak up. We step out. We give finances. We participate in righteousness and justice. And part of what it means to lament and to stand in solidarity and to take action, to stand with the oppressed, is to recognize evil when we see it. And in the midst of all that, 
we love our enemies. What an incredible command, an incredibly difficult command to force us to squirm in the outrageousness of Jesus' words the way that his audience might have. I want to um, suggest an example. Now, bear with me. Someone isn't going to like this. As a simple paradigmatic exercise, I'm going to use two American presidents, Donald Trump and Barack Obama. Even if you're not an aggressively political person, you can likely wrap your mind around the way these two figures divide the world. So let's start with Obama. Depending on where you live, your background and upbringing, your political idolatries, you may love or hate Obama. Par for the bipartisan course, the left loved Obama's progressive ideals and policies, but during his presidency, even Obama's advocates were critical of his emphasis on drone strikes, for example. Obama reportedly oversaw more strikes in his first year than his predecessor, George W. Bush of all people, carried out during his entire presidency. Eventually, Obama would oversee 10 times more strikes, 563 drone strikes to Bush's 57. Now, as a result of those orders, at least 384 civilians were killed, many of them children, though some reports place the number as high as 807. Now, the tension and scandal encompassed in the radical way of Jesus requires that his disciples recognize this as evil. The murder of men, women, and children made in God's image is evil. The empire using its power and might to enact violent injustice on people is evil. And yet, Jesus would have us love Barack Obama, even if for you he is the enemy. If you can't stand the sound of his name, Jesus would have you love him, bless him. And what's more than that, as a political leader, Jesus would have us pray for him. Whether he's upright, corrupt, or in between, we are to pray for him. Or take what seems in many ways to be Obama's antithesis in Donald Trump. The current president has a very long, very well-reported history of heated, racialized speech that ranges from insensitive to flagrantly hateful. So if the empire's leader calls violent, marching neo-Nazis and white supremacists, quote, very fine people, but tells immigrants to, quote, go back to their huts, we recognize this as racism. And racism is evil. God abhors it. When the empire's leader says of immigrants from Haiti and El Salvador, why are, these, why are we having all these people from blank whole countries come here? We recognize that as evil. And yet, Jesus would have us love Donald Trump. Jesus would have us bless him and not curse him. And again, what's more, as a political leader, upright, corrupt, or in between any political leader, Jesus would have us pray for him. Now, our church is mostly made up of young people that belong to a generational demographic that finds it very acceptable to loathe someone like Trump, even Christians. And I get it. He's an incendiary figure who often says and does things that defy the way of Jesus. But the cruel irony is that when so-called Christians infuriated appropriately by Trump's racism then move to loathe and detest and curse him, not just his actions, but him, they fall before the same sin they claim to detest. Hate. A world divided by socio-political vitriol has always made allowances for hate along party lines, but Jesus forbids it. 
And Jesus will not excuse a single disciple from this command based on their political idolatries. If you just really, really don't like the left or the right, if you really, really don't like Obama or Trump, whoever it is for you, the simple scandal of Jesus' command continues to ring out over our sincere unwillingness to obey it. Love your enemies. Do not ignore evil. Do not de-emphasize sin. But do not respond to either with hate or violence or retaliation. Instead, love your enemy. Love them above yourself. And Jesus goes on to clarify how to do that. First, pray for them. Praying for enemies is entering into the difficult process of inviting, of inviting God to transform your heart toward them. Luke's biography of Jesus goes on to cite additional examples of how enemy love is carried out. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And again, for those of us who apprentice Jesus, we learn not from his teaching alone, but from his lifestyle as well. Jesus did all these things. Jesus loved, forgave, and died rather than using violence to fight back. But for Jesus, the command is not without purpose. Look back down at Matthew 5 and read verse 45. Why love your enemies? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why love your enemies? Because that's what God does. Be like God. Later, an apprentice of Jesus called Paul will write in the New Testament that you and I, you and I were God's enemies And through Jesus, God demonstrates his love for enemies by dying for you and I as enemies of God. Jesus is inviting us to emulate God, to become like him, and in the process, we know him better. This is the standard for enemy love, a willingness to die on their behalf. And it sounds beautiful when we apply it to Jesus, when we remember his story, and we remember ourselves as the beneficiaries of Jesus' story. But what about when Jesus wants you to love your enemies this way? He goes on in verse 46, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't pagans do that? So here Jesus selects for his teaching example two well-recognized enemies of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people, of course, made up his audience. The first of those enemies being the tax collectors. A Jewish tax collector was in league with the Roman Empire. They were something like the way we would think of something like a Jewish informant for the Nazi party. Uh, Evil traitors, vile, villainous. And Jesus' second example is pagans, or the Romans, once again. The evil oppressors. So the traitors in league with the oppressors and the oppressors themselves, if Jesus were giving this teaching to our church tonight, he might use as his example whoever it is that you would least like him to mention. For you, maybe a racist police officer. He might mention militant Trump supporters or violent protesters 
if that's who makes your blood boil. He might mention neo-Nazis, or he might mention Antifa. And Jesus' suggestion is incredible. Do not greet only the people with whom you get along. That's nothing commendable. Greet your enemies. If you only love and interact and do life with people within your own sphere of community, your own ethnicity, your own socioeconomic class, or political party, or denomination, or theological camp, or field of interest, you are no different than a tax collector or a pagan. Glenn Stassen, an ethicist from Fuller Seminary, writes, Loving only those who love you is the in-group selfishness or cliquishness, cronyism, nepotism, racism, and nationalism. If we love only those who love us, we see only an in-group perspective and become closed-minded to see how others see things. As a result, we cannot understand our enemies' perspectives enough to enough to deal with them effectively we are less effective less powerful because we do not sufficiently understand enemies who wish us harm and so cannot do what is effective in persuading them to do what we think is right we grow frustrated and blame them all the more we transfer transfer our ineffectiveness to other people whom we do not understand this is the powerlessness of a culture of blame which is exactly why later in the new testament we read if your enemy is hungry feed him if he's thirsty give him something to drink in doing this you will heap burning coals on his head you will convict him and and persuade him do not overcome by evil overcome evil with good and jesus once again did this Jesus was famously criticized and dismissed for his willingness to destroy social barriers, eat dinner with pagans, drink with hookers and scum, visit the home of tax collectors, talk with Gentiles and Romans, even Roman officials, to enjoy their company. To us, divorced from the cultural context, this sounds sweet and sentimental. We have a whole Bible story built up around it. We like to imagine Jesus as this accepting, non-judgmental fellow and apply it to modern folks that we think of as broken or victimized or worthy of sympathy. And Jesus did that as well. But imagine Jesus visiting the home of a neo-Nazi to have dinner. Imagine Jesus inviting a Klansman to come follow him and learn a new way of life. Imagine Jesus having a drink with a racist cop. Imagine Jesus smiling and laughing with whoever it is that makes you furious. Imagine Jesus drinking wine and telling them about the coming kingdom and inviting them to come have a place in it. Imagine Jesus going to his death compelled by his great love for the great evildoers of history. And Jesus ends this teaching with a summary so shocking it can hardly be believed. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Why do this? What are we commanded to do? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The English word perfect might not be the best translation. In Greek, the word is teleos. It means uh, complete or whole or mature, developed. It's the same word that we use to describe children who have become adults. This means that Jesus is teaching that our goal as his disciples is to grow into men and women who are like God. We actually have less intimidating terms for this idea, terms like godly. Jesus is saying that loving your enemies, praying for them, entering into relationship with evildoers is how we become mature. It's how we become like God or godly. And that isn't some radical new way of reading this text. Most scholars interpret Jesus' final line this way. Here are some of their elaborations. 
Be perfect, that is. Love both your fellow Jewish neighbors and the Roman enemies in your midst. As your Father makes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on all humans, Jews and Romans, so are you to be perfect in your love as your Father is perfect in love. Stanley Hauerwas put it like this, We are called, therefore, to be perfect, but perfection names our participation in Christ's love of enemies. Perfection does not mean that we are sinless or that we are free of anger or lust. Rather, to be perfect is to learn to be a part of a people who take the time to live without resorting to violence to sustain their existence. Finally, one more from Henry Nouwen. That is our vocation, to convert the enemy into a guest and to create the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. Now, this begs the question, can this work? Can the enemy ever become a friend? To answer that question, think of your church. Think about your story, the story of those you know who follow Jesus. Think about yourself, your friends and family who follow Jesus, your church, as I read these words from the New Testament. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus the King, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You were God's enemy. How did he invite you into his company? How did he make it possible for you to become his friend? with angry Instagram stories and name-calling? Was it through bombs or drone strikes or racial slurs? Was it through fisticuffs or hatred or by leaving you to what you deserve? No. God used the incredible, self-sacrificial, generous, kind, nonviolent love of the cross. God had dinner with us. He looked us in the eye. He said hello before asking us to become perfect, he sacrificed for us. He listened to us. Ultimately, he preferred to die for his enemies rather than hate or kill them. So sometimes it works. An enemy becomes a friend. Here we are. Here I am. Other times, it does not. Many people remain enemies of God by their volition, not his. Today, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is appropriately recognized in both the history of America and the church as one of the greatest figures in civil rights. But many modern admirers of Dr. King fail to recognize that his extreme emphasis on nonviolent enemy love from the teachings of Jesus were incredibly divisive in his time. He was so, a passionate, uh, so passionate about I these ideas that he said, To our most bitter opponents we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. 
We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. It seems this aspect of Dr. King's life is already being forgotten to the degree that we admire his words in the past, but if we apply them to the violent turmoil of our time and place, the implications make us uneasy. And of course, you know the story. Dr. King's enemy love didn't work the way the world measures success. He was killed by the enemies he dedicated much of his life to loving. And this bears repeating because those of us passionate about nonviolent love to celebrate the instances of its often beautiful effectiveness, we, we love to tell those stories that sometimes this works. Enemy love converts the enemy into a friend. Nonviolence disarms and dismantles systems of violence. Nonviolence and enemy love can and often do stop violence and hatred in their tracks. They often do turn the enemy into a friend. Other times, they don't work. You're beaten or demeaned or dismissed or you even die or you lose your status or your privilege or your job, whatever it might be. Other times, enemies simply remain enemies of their volition, not yours. Sometimes it doesn't work in that sense. But if you are looking to the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus for a way of life that leaves your, your cultural and political sensibilities intact, that does not disrupt and dismantle your privileges, then believe me, you have come to the wrong place. Jesus' philosophy and lifestyle led him to be framed by religious fanatics, arrested by foreign pagan oppressors, beaten within an, within an inch of his life, and executed by means of the most heinous and humiliating methods the Roman Empire had to offer. And his invitation to you and I is come and be like him. If Jesus commands nonviolent, cross-shaped agape love to be given to even evildoers and enemies, then it matters not whether it works, whether or not it's safe, or what hypotheticals challenge the notion in your mind. If Jesus is our authority, then we obey him. And wherever this journey takes you, on this we must agree, Jesus commands that we love our enemies. So in this journey of learning justice and racial reconciliation as a church, I want all of us to grapple with two very important questions. The first is, who is your enemy? Ask yourself that question. Ask yourself who it is that stirs up rage, not just with evil, but with the evildoer in your heart. Who is it that most challenges your capacity to love the way God loves. A group of people, a politician, someone in your own life, someone you see on the internet. Who is your enemy? And the second question is this. When you know who it is that is your enemy, ask, what will it mean for you to love them? Begin with this from the teachings of Jesus. Pray for them. Commit to praying for them in an ongoing, purposeful, disciplined sense. Not just that they would repent 
of their evil. Pray for that, but don't stop there. Pray blessing over their lives. Ask the Spirit of God to transform your disposition of enmity to one of harmony and Spirit-filled love. Go with Jesus. He is leading us to life and life to the fullest, even when it makes us most uncomfortable. He is teaching us what it means to be like God, who loved us while we were his enemies, and in doing so, won us as friends. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us or find more teachings and available resources from Van City at www.vancity.church. You can also support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.